Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Shirlene Robinson, Senior Curator of Oral History and Indigenous Programs here at the National Library of Australia. From wherever you're watching, welcome to this digital only event recorded by the National Library. Throughout the internet, we can connect with people and places around the country, but it's important that we take a moment to connect with the people and place in which we find ourselves. I acknowledge and celebrate the traditional owners of the land on which the library sits, the Nambri and Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I thank them for caring for this land on which we at the library are privileged to work. The following event, The Path to Social Inclusion, considers the idea of the great Australian dream. This is a term that is often mentioned, but one that is rarely defined. To some, it's the dream of a house with a yard, Others look beyond the picket fence and dream of success in business or in their chosen field. But to those who are marginalised, whose voices are often drowned out, the dream often includes something many take for granted, the chance of getting a chance at that other great Australian concept, a fair go. History tells us that for many communities, getting an equal opportunity is something that is hard won. The collections held at the National Library of Australia document the struggles of many communities throughout history to be recognised and have that chance to achieve that dream. That might include material that outlines the struggles that women in Australia have faced in their ongoing quest for equality. The library is proud to hold papers and oral history material that records the struggle of this quest in the form of material from advocates such as the wonderful Jessie Street. The library also holds material that records the traumatic histories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as well as accounts of resilience and strength in the face of oppressive government policies. That includes the Bringing Them Home collection of 340 oral history interviews. The Australian dream means different things to different people. And Australia is built on the premise of giving everyone equal opportunity to reach their full potential. However, while prejudice and discrimination based on culture, ability, lifestyle or other factors still exist, how can the FAIRGO vision be realised? Please enjoy this discussion between author and appearance activist Carly Findlay, founder of Yarn Australia and proud Thangati and Bunjalong man Warren Roberts and 2017 Young Australian of the Year finalist and advocate to end domestic violence Tarang Chawla, hosted by author and anti-racism champion with the Australian Human Rights Commission Tazneem Chopra. Good morning or good afternoon. This is Tazneem Chopra and I am delighted to be here to moderate a conversation with three incredible Australians who are going to share their perspectives and thoughts on a really broad analysis of what the Australian dream would look like if it were, if we realised what a fair go and an inclusive Australia was. So we talk about what the ideal is of an Australia that is perfect and that is the dream fulfilled. I think from person to person, we'd all have a different take, but there'll definitely be some, some commonalities in those, in those themes. Um, with me today, and before I really go on, I, I do want to um, ask our first speaker, Warren Roberts, to start the session with an um, with acknowledgement to country. Warren, please. I'd first like to acknowledge that uh, we all gather on Aboriginal land and pay our respects to the elders, both past, present and emerging. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. Um, so our 
First speaker in this session will be Warren and a little bit about Warren. Warren is a proud Thungwiti and Bonjalung man who found yarn, which is Australia in, in, in Australia in 2007. He's got long experience working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, having worked for NGOs and universities, as well as local, state and federal government. He's also worked alongside some esteemed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders communities that have taught him to reflect on the value and contribution of cultural background. So Warren, um, welcome to this, to this panel. And when I talk to you about the Australian dream, what do you understand that to mean in your perspective? Um, again, it is about an opportunity for us to come together and have a dialogue with each other, sharing our stories um, and finding ways in which we can work together as a people. And do, you I, think we're, do you think we're any closer to reaching what that dream looks like or do you think there's still a long way to go? The way I look at it is um, we as Australian people is we are very much in silos and we, um, we can work a little bit more intentionally together and the way that I believe that we can do that is through storytelling. As First Peoples, we are storytellers. We've been telling stories for generations. To build the relationships between the diversity of Australia, I believe that's through storytelling. Beautiful. Um, when you talk about the storytelling, uh, this is an initiative, and I, I want to talk about this a bit later as we get into the session, but when you position storytelling as a, I guess, as a vehicle towards inclusivity, you're using that as the way to bring everyone together to the table and share something that we have in common. Is that right? Yes. Because through stories, we build trust and understanding. We build connection. Uh, we learn from each other. Because it's in that story, in your own story, if we can start there, that you start to reflect on things. You start to realise a whole bunch of different experiences and the things that you've been going through, you know. Mm. It, at that core place is where we can have an understanding of each other. Thank you. And um, look, the next person I want to bring into this conversation is, is Carly. Um, Carly Finlay is, again, a well-known Australian to many of you who, will be, who followed her work and her contribution on issues that are really pertinent to inclusive Australia. Um, Carly is a, she's a blogger, writer and speaker. She's an appearance activist, which I'll get her to explain to us a little bit more about what that means. And she challenges people's thinking about what it's like to be visibly different. She's written for many publications, including The Guardian, Age, Sydney Morning Herald, Daily Life, ABC, Mamma Mia, Frankie, the list goes on. She's extremely accomplished and she uses her blog to describe her skin condition, ichthyosis, um, as well as promotes causes such as Love Your Sister and Donate Life. She really has an illustrious award-winning career and we really welcome Carly to the segment. Carly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tasnane, and hello, everybody. How do you think we're tracking on the fair go for all Australians in this country? Uh, well, I guess as a, as a disabled person, as a person in the media, I think that we have a, a long way to go with the way uh, disabled people are treated 
by you know wider society by the government and also the media and um i you know as my bio said i really hope to change this um in the last month or so we've seen some horrific stories come out um around disabled people the torture and the deaths of them and these are the stories that are being told by the media but what about the stories that aren't being told what about those that we're not hearing the very people that have, have been entrusted to take care of them um, parents and also um you know the ndis employees they had not treated these people very well which has led to you know their um to, to, to sickness to malnourishment to death uh, and and we've since found out uh, with one case uh, with with a woman in, in um, Adelaide who was tortured so much by having been left in a cane chair uh, for a year with no proper nourishment or care that people had stolen from her, um, stolen from her, her estate, racked up fines on her car, which she couldn't drive. And I really feel like we need to focus on better respecting disabled people, valuing them, um, or valuing us in life as well as in death. And also, um, you know, the way the media reports on this um, is really othering poor. Just this week, there was an article about some um, children who lived in Perth, I believe, and they were covering, the, the journalist covered the story around a segregated home being closed down. I mean, that's a, another issue and we only have half an hour today. But um, the way the journalist described these boys, they quoted, their parents, they describe them in such a humanising derogatory way that, um, you know, if those boys were to read the article, there's no respect for them. There's no respect for disabled people as a whole. So I really feel like um, we need to do better in showing respect and inclusion of, um, you know, better funding for disabled people. Thank you. And I think your voice as an appearance activist has been central to that. What do you think has been the main missing piece in progressing inclusivity of disabled voices? I think not including disabled voices to start with. I mean, you know, in, in so many media articles around disability, disabled people aren't even spoken to. Um, you know, you'll see many articles about the NDIS, for example, which doesn't even include disabled people who are the very recipients of the NDIS. You know, they'll talk to NDIS providers, they'll talk to service providers in the sector, they'll talk to parents, but they don't talk to actually disabled people. So I think it's that. And I know I'm, I've been very fortunate to have worked in the media for about 10 years now, um, you know, uh, and I feel very fortunate to, to do that, but I feel we need more representation and we need better opportunities and equal pay and, um, and also not to just talk about disability stuff. You know, I got asked to write an article on Savage Garden last year and that was like my dream because I didn't have to write about, about disability all the time, you know, to so, show that we're multifaceted people. Yeah. Oh, well said. Um, look, and I think your, your comments on representation and the lack of voice for it is a beautiful segue into our next speaker, um, Tarang. Now, many of you might know Tarang from his incredible advocacy on gender-based violence issues in this country. He was the Young Australian of the Year, a finalist in 2017, and his inspirational story is heartwarming tale of overcoming adversity and rising above personal mental health struggles by advocating for a better world following the horrific murder of his 23-year-old sister, Nikita. He advises state and national governments, businesses, organisations on efforts to end domestic and family violence in its multiple forms um, across different ministerial com communities. 
He's the ambassador for the Victoria Against Violence, uh, the newly reformed White Ribbon, Our Watch, In Touch Multicultural Centre Against Family Violence and Safe Steps. So that's pretty much the full gamut on organisations that are contending with this issue. Um, he is very strong and passionate about working with young men to support them in their attitudes of masculinity and toxic masculinity as we've come to now associate that term. Tarang, welcome to the panel. How do you think we're tracking on the elusive fair go for all in Australia? I think uh, we have this idea in Australia uh, and, and both of um, the other speakers have touched on it so excellently. I think of this idea that the fair go is, um, is fair, is equitable and is available to everybody. But if we take First Nations peoples, if we take, um, you know, disabled people, if we take, uh, you know, people of colour, if we take um, whether, you, you know, the migrant community, if we take asylum seekers, if we start actually um, looking at um, society as fragments of a whole, we'll see that the opportunities and the concept of a fair go is applying to a very narrow section of the population. Um, and that, and those are the stories that are being told. Those are the statues that have been historically erected. Those are the um, faces that are seen in our media. Those are the faces that are seen in our political spheres, in the, you know, in the corridors of power. And I think from my perspective, uh, it's so crucial uh, that we start to unpack what those you know, what those signs say about where society currently is. And I think that where we are now in terms of the context of this Australian dream is that it's just that, a dream. And I think that we would benefit a lot from um, collectively waking up and actually going, what's it look like now? Let's be honest about our history, whether that's our history with First Nations peoples, whether that's the history of how um, European colonisation happened, whether that's the history... Uh, more recently of our treatment of asylum seekers, let's start looking at different aspects of our history and unpacking it so that we can hopefully create a future that is more inclusive of, you know, um, the types of communities that the other panellists represent. And, you know, in a, in a deeply personal way, a community that um, won't result in the, the murder of women at the hands of a current or former partner at least one a week. Absolutely. Uh, I'm just wondering, based on everything that you said, do you think right now where we are in the world, we've just in recently in recent weeks, we've witnessed the, the murder of George Floyd in America and the outpouring of rage that has been subsequently harnessed globally with protests and a movement that is seeing statues topple down, you know, institutions questioned, um, certain privileges and entitlements tested. Do you, do you feel here in Australia that we reached a point where we're actually seeing some sizable change? And I asked this to all of you, but I'll start with you, Tarang. Do you think, do you think a change is coming? I think a change is not only just coming, I think change is happening. Change is often more organic and we might look back in hindsight and go, oh, wow, that was, that was the, you know, the seminal moment or that was the, the shift in zeitgeist. But this has been happening for, um, you know, at least a couple of hundred years, particularly since colonization. I think that something that's, you know, what I'd make of these more recent sort of, let's take George Floyd's example of the Black Lives Matter protests is that, you know, we are living at the moment as we're filming this way in a, in a coronavirus pandemic world. And so I think that the, the conditions 
across a whole gamut of factors were just just right enough that yet another murder or yet another killing of a black man in police custody, though not in Australia, was was sufficient to garner enough public attention for Australians to start looking at what's been happening in our backyard. Um, and I think that it's very important that that continues, that we start to examine what it's saying about our treatment of First Nations peoples, what mm -hmm. it's saying about our treatment of women and everybody who um, historically and contemporaneously continues to be marginalised. Warren, I might, I might bring you in here, Rob. Um, sorry, Warren. Um, I might bring you in here. The idea that this has been happening for ages, and we spoke about this briefly yesterday, you said this is nothing new. We know what's been going on. Having said that, do you think there's a catalyst for change in recent weeks and months that you haven't noticed before, or do you, do you have a sense that this is deja vu? Uh, I think there's a real opportunity uh, at the moment. Um, there's more uh, our non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters who are open to be part of the, the dialogue of learning more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, learning about our past and reflecting on the history that, is, that has come to this point. And the, the biggest thing is, while ever there's an opportunity to do that, we should embrace it. But my question is, where is the spaces for this conversation to take place? Where is the place to build relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people beyond the television screen, beyond social media black boxes posts, beyond uh, attending rallies? What I'm looking at is looking as having a more of an intentional dialogue of building relationships directly with Aboriginal people. Hear the stories directly by us. Hear the struggles directly by us. Hear those mm. things because it's only when you hear it firsthand that you understand the complexity of the system that we're living under. And what's the but mechanism, Warren, what's the mechanism to hear those stories? How do you envisage that's going to look? So what I set out to do on the, on the 1st of May is uh, inspire 1 million Australians to become intentional storytellers. 1 million? Yes. Wow. That's, that's no easy feat. Okay, kudos to you, yes. And the way I, I, I do that is building relationships with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous Australians. And what we, we're doing this online, we're doing on Zoom, and what's happening is we're engaging with over now 70 people who've come on board since the 1st of May to have that national dialogue on how do we build intentional relationships with our First Peoples? How do we create spaces where we can hear the First Nation voice? How do we create spaces where we can hear the, the, the complexities and, and the, the injustices that has been inflicted on Aboriginal people is mm. through spaces. The, the unique thing about these spaces is we have both young people and our older generation. We have mums and dads and grandfathers and brothers and sisters who are part of this national dialogue. And this is once a month for two hours for 12 months. This is not a, a, a quick... Sorry, I just, I just want to ask you then, Warren, when you have a one million voices participating to this incredible initiative, how do you know how much listening is happening and instead of just talking? Because the way I look at it is once people build a relationship with each other, they'll start to find the synergies and ways to build uh, change and, and make impact. Because if it's not in, in the hearts of the minds individually, how can we see change? Change cannot happen through the act of the bill of parliament. 
or waiting for um, you know, a referendum because it's only until we have the relationships between each other as individuals that we can start to see the synergies and the, and the opportunities to build more relationships. And the way that we've done that is built relationships with pub, like public venues to create opportunities for people to come together and talk and celebrate the unique cultures of First Peoples. But at the same time, as much as the, 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 the Australian people want to know our story as First Peoples, we just as want to know your story as well. This is why we've set out to have this vision to create an opportunity for us to get together and talk about things. Because at the moment, all I hear is what's on the screen, what's in, you know, it's at arm's length. What we need to do is we need to create spaces where we can come together and share because it's only at that reality individually that we can see what's possible, not only just for First Peoples, but for all people. That's where the change will take place. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a real opportunity for us to get together and we have been getting together. And people are it's, saying- it's quite a, And it's quite a tremendous, um, quite a tremendous scope of people to get and so many voices, which I'm sure are gonna exceed an Australian intake as well. Carly, if I could throw to you now, I mean, you're a writer. Um, yep. How has the vehicle and power of storytelling either liberated you or frustrated you? Um, I guess on a personal note to, you know, I, I often my, my stories are very much memoir based, even for the media, they're very much based on personal experience. And, um, you know, the, le the measure of my success is when somebody writes to me to say that it's because I've told my story about living with a rare severe skin condition that they feel less alone and more able to, um, you know, be, be public about their skin condition, even, even if it's just identifying to themselves that they have this skin condition that's a huge step um also if people tell me that they are seeing um you know reading my work and changing the way they use language you know there were so many um disability slurs ingrained into our everyday vocabulary and so when somebody you know reads my work and says oh i never knew that i'm going to change my language now that really you know matters to me as well uh, you know I, overall though i think that storytelling is so so important for disabled people because our stories are often not heard um, I absolutely recognise my privilege, but for many people who haven't been in mainstream education or whose parents perhaps haven't even let them know they've got a disability because disability is seen as so shameful, or if they're intellectually disabled and they're in a group home, um, which isn't great, or if they... Uh, you know, if the level of expectation for disabled people is so low that they're not able to tell their stories, then all these stories are being lost. So it is really important to use art, um, you know, many forms of art, or like music, visual arts, performing arts, and also writing to um, enable people to tell stories. And it's very important that, that the ways that we do this is disability-led because so much of the time we're expected to be palatable for the non-disabled gaze or um, palatable for people to feel comfortable with us and like I know when I'm you know when I write about discrimination for example I get a lot of devil's advocates telling me oh maybe they were having a bad day maybe you know you you heard it wrong or maybe you were having a bad day and and were um, you know 
underestimating them. Uh, and so I feel like we are the experts in our own experience and the experience is very varied and we need to see those experiences. One thing I would say is so um, disability representation in Australia across the world is very, very white. And I think we have to change that because we're not hearing from enough people of colour. We're not hearing from enough uh, Aboriginal disabled people. We're not hearing from enough people in developing countries. And so it's very, very important to, you know, invite them to have their stories centered. One of the things I'm personally doing is sharing lots of different stories from disabled people of color, people of color with ichthyosis on my Instagram. And I know that that is a pretty safe space for them to take part because I regularly, you know, promote um, different people amplify voices. But um, when uh, it is very important that when you, when you as a white person, uh, so the audience members out here as, as white people, when you do share the mic, when you, when you have the good intentions to amplify voices of um, marginalized people, it's very important that you create a safe space for them to do so. Um, so you. you know, if this is the first time that you're doing it, um, you know, if you've never mentioned um, the importance of amplifying Black Lives Matter or Black businesses um, or issues, uh, it's a very important that you ensure that there is cultural safety within your space when you talk about these issues, so that the people whose voices you are amplifying feel safe. That's a very good point. Um, mm. And I'm just thinking, Tarang, once upon a time, you know, when, I mean, growing up in Australia, um, say 20, 30 years ago, negotiating identity as a person of colour then versus now has, has been an evolution of sorts. What do you know now that you would have told your, maybe your 12-year-old self um, back when you were 12 in Australia um, that would maybe help you endure the, the tough moments? How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think uh, Carly raised some beautiful points, as did Warren. Uh, but the one thing I, I would say to myself as, uh, you know, a, a young boy, really, not even yet a man, so let's say 12 years old, uh, I would say brown is beautiful. Uh, that's, that's it. Because I, I, I grew up, you know, I have an Australian accent. I grew up as a, as a, uh, a third culture kid. You know, so many of my other friends did. And we had to make a choice which side of the, you know, so-called fence do we sit on? Do we, do we still have to make that choice? I think we still have to make that choice, but I think now we know that, that, that at least that binary is put to us. You know, like I think, think we... And I'm, I'm saying this and I'm just going to interject now because I've just got these ideas. Do you think we make the choice or do you think others make the choice for us and decide what lane and what box we're all going to be in, whether it's Warren or Carly or you or me? Do people and the system and policies and rhetoric, do they decide the lane and box or do we? I think that in much like a, a Foucauldian, you know, network of power structures, it, it exists on both sides. I think that... But, but I think that the, um, the, the power that is vested in the person with the lived experience, that, that is always trumped by whichever, whichever um, person, entity or structure has the power to make decisions. So, for example, I could decide, you know, as a person of colour, um, whether that particular day I'm wearing, you know, traditional Indian dress or I'm wearing, you know, Western clothing. But whatever choice I make, 
there will be somebody else to tell me whether it fits into the correct lane. You know, and I think now that's where we're at. And previously, I think we were at a stage, particularly in the South Asian community, of where I've, you know, I've got instances of my childhood where I'd feel embarrassed going out in public with um, members of my own family when they were wearing Indian clothing. And I would ask them to wear something else because I knew that if I got seen at the shopping centre on the weekend, come Monday morning in year seven, year eight, I would get teased because somebody saw me with my you know, Indian auntie. And I, you know, and so we internalize a shame around our sense of identity that we never should, you know, we never should have to feel, uh, yeah. we are different, but that's okay. And we should never have to feel othered because of that. And these are the stories that we, you know, when Warren talks about stories, shifting, shifting perception, you hear something like that and straight away there's a resonance. And I'm reminded, I guess I'll share my little, my little quirk is that when I was, when my oldest daughter was in, in primary school after 9-11, I remember her telling me the week after school, after 9-11 happened and she was at school and I was going to pick her up. She said, mum, when you pick me up, can you please wear jeans so that people don't know that you're Muslim? And I, mean, I was wearing a scarf. <laughs> somehow she associated the jeans would somehow nullify anything that was ethnic and therefore definitely be my undercover garb. And I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll wear the jeans because it mattered to her, for me not to be perceived as the other, for her to feel safe. And I think it's, it speaks to that same idea, um, how we, we try to appease others to look like them. I mean, Warren, when, with, with all those stories that you've been amassing with your, with your initiative, is there anything that in, in the recent collection that really stands out to you as really powerful and potentially like shifting people's perceptions? I think the, the, the powerful of it is, is we're having this, we're telling the stories together. We're not at the moment, like where are, where are those spaces where we can hear those stories? And what the uniqueness of it is, we have Australians calling from all over the country, sharing their stories from all different walks of life. Where is that space where you can have that conversation? And what's so, what's so deadly about it is we're having the conversation together. Because when we come back together monthly and have a yarn, we're reflecting on some of the things that we talked about. And you know all these things that you see on social media and what's happening in the world. And then when we come back and we talk about it, we go, hey, you know what? When we talked about that story before, the stories that we were talking about, how it impacted on us between those times and we started to reflect. If we crack, storytelling is great if it's a practice of reflection. Because if you look at our history, our history is lived experience. It's not a bunch of dates you're going to forget. It's a whole bunch of people's experiences. And what I'm trying to do is just create an opportunity for people to come together, share their stories, be heard, be understood, continue to learn more. Some, some people go, I don't really have a story. And I'm like, that's the story. You know, let's not get complicated about what the story is. Let's just embrace the practice of storytelling. And that's a reflection. When somebody comes to me and goes, what, what do you teach in Yana? I said, well, we don't teach anybody anything. What we do is accept what truth means to you. Because it's not about right and wrong, because your story is what it is. You know, when people were, were in, when I was a kid, young fella, and going to a school and being, um, you know, bullied or racism and things like that, I went home to my grandmother and she said to me, 
let me tell you something. One grandmother said, be proud of who you are and your black skin. And another grandmother said, let me tell you something. No matter what anyone may say about you, you know, only you know your own story. So when I walked through that school and people were calling me different things or people were doing shifting because of, the, of who I am as an Aboriginal man, all I knew was, you know what, that gave me strength that I already knew what my story is. You know, so I don't need to worry about other people's uh, uh, perceptions or assumptions of who I am. So when you start own own story, anything's possible. No, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head there. And I think Carly touched on something similar. When you see yourself represented in stories that you hear and that you read, it gives you a great sense of validation and safety. Um, when, you, when you see a speaker, when you see a presenter on Play School, um, and you know whether you, you you see a song on 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 MTV or whatever it is, but if you see yourself reflected, if you hear yourself in voice, and if you read about yourself in another format, it can be a very empowering experience. Mm. Carly, I just want to ask you now, as we sort of wind up here, yeah. if the great Australian dream were realised um, in a final iteration, what would that look like to you? That's a very big question. Um, yeah, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel that it would be that everybody looks after each other, looks out for each other, um, accepts people as they are. And I think that's a really um, idealised way to think because I know, you know, as a arts worker, lefty, um, appearance activist, disability activist, there's a lot of stuff I don't agree with and probably won't listen to that goes against my own values. But I think that it's really important to look outside of our own experience and our own bubble. Uh, you know, I was very, very shocked when the Liberal Party got voted in, for example, again, because the people that I associate with, um, I mean, many, many of them were not uh, you know, Liberal Party voters. And yet, so I realised that my own echo chamber really showed how naive I was around that. So I think it's important to, you know, listen to other, other sides and also consume media that perhaps you um, wouldn't ordinarily agree with. And you know, as a writer, I often take part in media that I don't agree with because those are the people I need to influence. And also they pay quite well, so... <laughs> That's important. Karan, what about you yourself? If you were to realise an Australian dream that we haven't quite gotten to yet, what would that look like? It would look like, uh, it would look like cultural safety in practice or in action. I think that a lot of our issues as a nation stem from um, cultural ignorance, cultural miseducation, and I'm not speaking simply about ethnocultural, you know, migrant backgrounds. I'm talking about the general kind of culture. We would create culturally safe space, whether it's to share the stories of First Nations peoples, whether it's like some of the work that I do, putting names and faces to the nameless victims of men's violence. It would be about um, elevating and amplifying the marginalised. Beautifully said. And Warren, what would a perfect Australian dream realised look like to you? When we can um, create a space that reflects the national identity of this country through 
the unique cultures of First Peoples, because we are all standing on Aboriginal land. We are all on First Nations country. Let's see that as an as a opportunity to reflect, continue the stories that we've always been telling. We've been telling stories for generations. Let's continue that unique culture and tradition with all peoples of this country. Beautiful. Well, look, it's been great having you, having all three, these beautiful perspectives, definitely nuanced and well-informed based on your individual skill sets and backgrounds and, and just appreciating the value of communication and conversation, be it through storytelling or writing books or giving presentations, but using communication and as, as, as the vehicle for change. And I think there's, there's some enormous learnings there, which if we harness them, maybe we will get closer to realising a fair go and inclusivity for all. I mean, my takeaways, and I've written a few down, include that yarning is deadly, um, brown is beautiful, and that Carly can write about Savage Garden, which is something I'd really like to take up offline with you both. But um, please thank you all. Give yourselves a little clap. Um, Rowan Roberts, Carly Finlay and Tarang Chawla, thank you so much for participating in this session um, and understanding what a fair go and inclusive Australia could look like if we got it right. Thank you. Thank you, Tasneem. Thank you.